This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibowitz. Hello to you. And by tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butner. Is it Hanukkah yet? We're in the interregnum. We're in the we're in ordinary time, as the Catholics would say. We're, we're in between the three holidays. weeks between uh... <laughs> the three weeks. Capital T, capital W. Three interviews this week. Jews everywhere. First, we spoke with Colorado Governor Jared Polis. We traveled through the Jewy looking glass to speak with the other Mark Oppenheimer. He's an advocate, which is sort of like being a barrister or a solicitor in South Africa. He's the Mark Oppenheimer who gets my emails and I get his emails. He's squatted on the Gmail of mark.oppenheimer@gmail.com. He and I have been in each other's lives for years, and now the two of us shall meet. And it was, Your wives it was a, are very confused. Your children <laughs> don't even know what to do. It was a lot of fun. I don't want to say that's why you started a podcast, but that is definitely not a bad like side effect to having a podcast. <laughs> like finding the other people who share share yeah. one's name. Is there another Stephanie Butnick? Stephanie Butnick? I don't think so. There are a lot of Butnicks um, and some of them I'm related to, some not. But like every Dang. now and then I'll get a Facebook message from a Butnick. Dang. I have the most common name of the three of us. That's- Could you imagine another Leah Libo? It's like, even in theory, this is like... Well, okay, I like when people write to Tablet being like, I'm so mad at that Mrs. Leah Leibowitz's story. I did not like what she wrote. And so like everyone kind of assumes you're a woman. First of so all, it's Ms. Maybe that's your alter ego. Leah Leibowitz. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Okay. Very modern. Yeah. Wait, wait. That's weird though. People who hear him talk in his no, barely no, people chesty... No, read. people who read me all oh, assume... I'm a woman. Like an because, angry lady. Because, exactly, because when you hear like angry, you know, very clearly like warlike energies, you assume woman. Like I don't understand. Angry right wing columnist Leo right. Leibowitz. <laughs> I should say about the other Mark Oppenheimer. He's about 35 years old and he is single. So while this Mark Oppenheimer is off the market, literally off the market. If you've always wanted a Mark Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> he is a straight Jewish South African lawyer who is looking. So just, I'm going to throw that out there right now. Anyway, it's a great interview. We also uh, sneaked in another fun holiday gifting idea. We talked with Brian Hirsch, who is the creator of Jewish Taboo, and a new game, Boom Again, which is a trivia game aimed at baby boomers. So lots of fun Jewiness this week. Uh, Thanksgiving, I'd like a recap. Uh, I want to start with Liel because you are the proudest chef of the three of us. What did you make? Who was there? Was it a success? The crowds got smaller. The birds got bigger. <laughs> I'm a moron, so I did not realize I needed to reserve any bird in advance. So I called my butcher Monday and said, yeah, when can I come and pick out the bird? And he's like, whenever you want. Your butcher. I love that you have a butcher. Oh, of course I have a butcher. <laughs> come on now. <laughs> Together with my barrister and my, <laughs> my tailor and my candlestick, candlestick maker. Candlestick maker. Ah, uh, jinx. Uh, I do have my hairdresser who comes and cuts my hair on my porch now in COVID times. Oh, my butcher so. does that for me too. <laughs> Which explains <laughs> if you could see the visual. Uh, it was amazing. So he said, you could come and pick it up anytime you want. And then I kind of hear his snickering. I was like, why Why are you being weird right now? And he said, well, because you do realize the only bird I have starts at like 16 pounds. I was like, but we're four people. He said, well, maybe I can make uh, 14 and a half pounds for you. And so we'll be eating turkey uh, until next Pesach. More or less, but it was delightful. I actually got to relax. Usually I would have had 30 people. This time around, I had, you know, two hungry children. Uh, we were watching the dog show. We were having a good time. A gazint and freilache Thanksgiving it was really had. Was. 
Stephanie, how was your Thanksgiving? It was very, like, outdoors. I actually did two nights of Thanksgiving. I basically made it Passover. Because, you know, yeah, in, in Galus, you don't really know when Thanksgiving falls yeah, in Kislev, so... so you have to celebrate <laughs> second night Thanksgiving. So the first night, luckily, both my parents and my in-laws have those, like, outdoor heaters that everyone was, like, rushing to buy a few months ago. So we did the first night of Thanksgiving with the Coens, the second night with the Butniks, all outside. It was really fun. And then you basically just got, like, bundled up and sat outside. But I've been thinking a lot about, I like Thanksgiving, but I feel like, is it that big of a deal to Jews? Like, can, isn't there an argument that, like, Passover is our Thanksgiving? Because, you know, everyone was sort of very, very upset in the lead-up to Thanksgiving. What am I going to do? I can't see my family. I'm not supposed to take a plane across the country. Maybe I did anyway. But, um, you know, people were very upset about Thanksgiving. But I kind of had this thought. First of all, we've been through so much, right? We had the we had the Passover under lockdown. We've had Rosh Hashanah on separate. Like, we've had all these Zoom holidays that, like, I feel like we're like, eh, Thanksgiving for this? For this I should fly cross country? <laughs> well, there is always that question. It's like one of, it's one of those Goyesha holidays, right? They're like real, like Orthodox Jews. I don't know, Sara Fredman Ader, can I guess start with the Mod Orth perspective at your shul's Thanksgiving? Everyone does it? Thanksgiving was always a big deal in my family personally, because it's the day that um, my grandmother escaping from Germany arrived in New York the day she saw the Statue of Liberty. So in our family, it was always wow. a big deal. That is incredible. Yeah. Also Top the that. most Jewish Thanksgiving story I've ever heard. Right. Way to Jew up the Thanksgiving. Exactly. The Holocaust. I would say that in, in our community, yeah, absolutely. People celebrate it. It's the one not Jewish holiday we do. We don't get Halloween. Right. But but if you move a click or two to the right, they start dropping Thanksgiving, I'm guessing. So halakhically, as as you will not be at all surprised to learn, uh, this is a topic of huge controversy and discussion. Some rabbis say, yeah, absolutely. This is- Party uh, on. This is, no, no, no. This is not kosher uh, because oh. this is a, a holiday that is based in the Gregorian calendar. Therefore, this is not uh, for any kosher Jew to celebrate. However- Others, uh, and Dov Linzer, who is the, the host of Tablet's weekly Parsha podcast and has his own very fascinating podcast about Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, the, the, the great halachic mastermind, had his podcast in which basically he presented uh, like some really delightful Talmudic approaches to this question, basically saying, okay, look, it's not a Jewish holiday, therefore don't celebrate it. But if it's Thursday and your family happens to be around, and maybe all of you are in a mood for, I don't know, like turkey, and I don't know, got some cranberry sauce lying around. Okay, do it. But maybe every like third or fourth year, don't do it. So it's like not a habit. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> you should really get into this particular turkey hole. We also have to go into the big idea about whether or not turkeys are in fact kosher. Oh, that was a major, major, major controversy for a very long time. But they it's are. A new, it's a new world bird. Yeah, but it took a while to figure it out because it was unobservable. Poultry is a really difficult, cautious category. Okay, but ShopRite gives away, if you spend a certain amount, they will give you like a free turkey. And one of them, they they used to, I, I heard this, this is, this, is, this is new news. This year, Empire kosher turkeys were part of that giveaway. So you could get your free kosher turkey if you spent X amount at ShopRite. Amazing. At long That's last. the Jewish American dream right there. <laughs> and it's a miracle. You bought a turkey for one night and it lasted eight nights. I the know, still of in my fridge. <laughs> Anything's possible in the new world. Well, vegetarian Thanksgiving at the Oppenheimers, I realized was basically soul food because we always do macaroni and cheese and then we do green beans and then we do mashed potatoes and sweet potatoes and then we do pie. And I realized it's essentially, it's like Southern or soul food. It was delicious. But the really important culinary experience of the past week was that I realized after some deep research that we misled the J. Crew about the existential status of Friendly's Restaurant. Although... <laughs> when you say we, let's just be clear. I just want to, like, was that me? Did I lead, mislead them? I think Liel came up with that news bit. But it is true that 
Friendlies is entering bankruptcy protection yet again. But right now, the plan is to keep a lot of the restaurants open and hope that the, the whatever new owner rescues Friendlies from bankruptcy will continue the brand. So I was able, I decided, you know what? I got I to gotta put my money where my mouth is. And I drove up to North Haven off exit nine near the Barnes & Noble and the Cinemark movie chain and the Petco. And I went to the Friendlies. And there was, they, they aren't seating people. There's one woman taking orders and one man who's the short order cook in this whole friendly, you go to the window, the takeout window, the ice cream window, and I put in an order, don't tell, don't tell any of the vegetarians, I put in an order for a fish-a-ma-jig and fries. And I got, and Sid asked me if I'd bring her a coffee fribble, so I did. And then uh, 15 minutes later, it, it arrived. It took 15 it minutes. It did. I, I don't, I don't want to pick on friendlies. I don't want to kick oh them all their down. But I was the one guest. I would have made in- the efficient in less time than that. <laughs> and I sat in my car and I ate it. And it was, it was a mix of both heavenly and also disappointing because it's gotten more substantial since I was a child. It's now a thicker piece of cod. You know, it used to be like a smashed down, like little, you know, cafeteria. Like a fish fillet. Su- yeah. And now it was like a whole meal. I, I didn't want, and the fries were like, heartier. And I realized American cuisine now gives you like beefsteak fries. They used to be the old damp stringy fries that were so delicious. You realize, by the way, I'm sorry, that this is exactly the opposite narrative of any like, oh, I remember this is so glorious from my childhood. And then it was just a bunch of damp stringy fries and a no. flat. <laughs> You're like, I remember it is so flat and stringy. And now here it was this delicious, substantial It used substantial to basically meal. be fast food with a patina of sit down class. And now it's like sit down, you know, chilies food with just a friendlies window serving it to you. I, I don't know. I mean, the point these is, will be the dentist's office at this <laughs> the point. The point is they persevere. And I encourage you all to go to friendlies. That is the beginning of the news of the Jews. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. We go from the small to the big. We go across the ocean. Our public health correspondent, Leah Leibowitz, has an item for us. This is uh, straight from the continent of Europe. Could you guess which country on that continent was by far, I mean, leaps and bounds, I mean, far and away, the worst hit by COVID? I'll give you a hint. It's also the child rape capital of the world. Oh, my God. Stop saying that. It's Belgium? Okay. Ugh. It is Belgium. How did we let this happen? Indeed. This whole Belgium which is, thing. Which is registering, like, rates of infection and death that are, like, far and beyond and above anything that anyone else, any of its neighbors are doing, which kind of leads you to, why does Belgium suck so bad? And then, and then you kind of get into it, and you realize that only in October, this October, they have resolved a... 592-day crisis in which they were not able to form a government, which makes Israel seem like an (laughs) island of stability, which may have uh, to do something with the fact that they are basically not a real country that really should exist, but rather a collection of cantons of different cultures and languages. I have a rebuttal because there was an article in the Times last week called A Holocaust Survivor Lifts Neighbors in Dark Times. It is about this man, Simon Gronowski. He lives in Brussels. And in April, he moved his piano under the windowsill, opened it up, and just started playing. And now it's just like a neighborhood thing. Like everyone come, gathers right. below the window to listen to him. And I love it. I love the story so much. See, it cheered, it cheered people up. People were not sad because of COVID lockdowns. They were sad because they live in Belgium. 
And this lovely pianist made them a little bit happier. <laughs> he's like, I survived worse than this. Let me tell you about the Holocaust. Anyway, he's 89. And if you go to his block, he plays the piano. And he, like, jumped off a train in, during the Holocaust. Like, he has a whole crazy, crazy backstory, of course. But I just want to I want to stick up for, for Brussels here. Liel, take us to Saudi Arabia. Circle, circle the globe. Circle the hemisphere for us. According to reports, and I would note that these are foreign reports that have ne- neither been denied nor confirmed by the Mossad, but the head of the Mossad, together with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, allegedly reportedly visited Saudi Arabia last week for what may or may not be the first kind of clandestine step towards a brand new peace agreement, uh, which would be historic between these two countries. But I'm sorry, I only have one question, which is this. So Bibi gets to, you know, Saudi Arabia, gets off the plane. Does he bring his laundry? <laughs> it's like, hey, Mohammed bin Salman, it's really great to see you. So here's my dirty, here's Sarah's whites and, you know, just take them and, you know, gentle press, please, and rinse cycle. This, of course, a reminder that a news item from about, what, six months ago or so that when BB visits America. I feel like it was like a month ago. Who even knows, right? But when he visits America, he brings his laundry with him. Is Israeli French press laundry really bad? Is that, what's going on here? Well, we have dryers. He didn't want to hang everything on the line. <laughs> he was sick of, of showering in those Israeli showers where the whole bathroom becomes the shower. Right. And then you have to mop it up. Oh, God. It's like someone, oh. someone has to do it better. Moving stateside, uh, Stephanie, do you have some reports from the uh, the world of sports? Okay, so there recently was the NBA draft, which, Mark, is where you pick players to join the, the National Basketball League, and they play this game called basketball on Got TV, it. sometimes Got in it. a bubble, sometimes not. So there have been two Israelis in history who have been in the NBA. We've doubled it because there are now two Israelis who were drafted this year. I mean, look, technically three, but I just I don't like to talk about it that much, so it's okay. <laughs> You're so modest, That was the Leo. other Liel Leibowitz. <laughs> the ninth pick in the draft, which is like pretty insane, was Danny Avdia, who was picked uh, by the Washington Wizards. And he was one of those people before everyone was like, Danny, Danny, like the Jews were really, really excited about him. But I'm actually more excited about Yam Madar, who was picked um, in second round, number 47. So like not so flashy, but um, he was picked by the Boston Celtics. And He's going to be playing with Kevin McHale and Larry Bird? Yes, yes. It's, it, they went through the looking glass and the other Mark Oppenheimer is also on that team. Listen, he traveled to Boston in a DeLorean. So yes, he will be playing with Larry Bird. <laughs> I know a lot about the Boston Celtics circa 1985. <laughs> the real cool thing, though, is that Yam Madar is Yemenite. He's Yemeni Jewish and he, that means he's a Mizrahi Jew. So that's actually like great in terms of representation. It's just like very, very exciting. But I do want to point you to the NBA's official draft like website where they list all the draft prospects, the page for Yam Madar. And this is this is how it starts. I want you to tell me if something sounds weird about this. Yam Madar is a quick and shifty Israeli point guard <laughs> who amazes with his great passing. I'm sorry, is a shifty point, Israeli point guard? A shifty is the Israeli weirdest. point guard. A sly, crafty point guard from... <laughs> The he, Middle East. He, he grabbed the ball. Like I literally was like, I'm sorry. Is that that cannot be like a term you hear? Are you shifty? He Can was he, signed. Basketball he was signed for money. <laughs> uh, anyway, Yamadar, our shifty point guard, <laughs> Denny of Dia, our probably also shifty player. Welcome both of you. We laugh. But honestly, unlike crafty or sly, th- those could have positive connotations, right? Shifty is never a good thing. I mean, shifty is basically underhanded. Like, there's no, there's no good gloss on shifty. I think we should bring it back. I should. <laughs> like, we should. We should make like a yeah. cool cop drama featuring like a badass Jewish cop called Shifty. He's a complicated man, but no one understands him <laughs> like his bank manager talking that about shifty. shifty. 
that little shifty, that shifty Yamadar. Anyway, oh my that God. is all the basketball news. <laughs> and finally, leaping ever further into the muck, another controversial topic here, Barbara Streisand, <laughs> who this week was interviewed in the New York Not Times. Not a controversial topic. Join us next week, and Mark is working really hard to get everyone to dislike him. Insofar as I think Barbara Streisand is overrated, would you agree with me on Liel, wow. right? Hmm. Right? Hugely And Stephanie, so. you admire her as a person, but I don't believe you listen to her music. No, I understand and I appreciate the importance wait, wait. she had. Do you ever listen to her music? Do ever, I like put ever, on a, ever. Rec- a funny girl record? No, but I've listened to her. I've heard her music. I, I, li- I like when her When did Avinu you last Malkanu. hear Barbara Streisand other <laughs> than the Avinu Malkanu? Yom Kippur, baby. Other Just than the Avinu Malkanu. Where were you? Um, <laughs> I was singing, I was singing, um, don't, don't read on my parade while I was reading this article. So technically this morning. Name three Barbara Streisand songs. This is you're, this is just rude. I want to tell you what this news bit is. Please just let me. You want to do Okay. What was the Basically, news Basically there's this big New York Times piece about Barbara Streisand and the most important sentence in it, it says she can get the Apple chief executive, Tim Cook, on the phone and recently asked him to correct serious pronunciation of her name from Streisand to Streisand, which it's is the amazing. end of civilization. I also feel like we probably are saying her name wrong. Don't you say Streisand? I do. Well, but it's Streisand. I, I, I don't say her name for, for fear that she will appear, uh, but you know. She, Leo, she won't appear because she's in her underground doll museum, as we know, from numerous- With the genetically cloned dogs. With the genetically cloned puppies. And, she hits and, all of your marks, Mark. <laughs> don't tell me not to live, just sit and cut. Life's candy and the sun's a ball Don't bring around cluttering on my parade. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Jared Polis has made history as the first Jewish governor of Colorado, the first openly gay governor in the U.S., the first everything you can imagine of first two, it's this gentleman. He's also a tech entrepreneur and a philanthropist and a really great son, a loving husband, a great dad. Mark and I sat down to talk to him about, you know, all the things that you would talk to a governor about, like playing video games and doing drugs. Have a listen. Our Jew of the Week is Governor Jared Polis, the governor of Colorado. He is their first, and we trust not their last, Jewish governor. Governor Polis, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mark. I can't believe I made Jew of the Week. That's uh, exciting. Now your mother could finally be proud of you. You know, congressman, (laughs) successful businessman, governor, father. But now you've made it. 
Jew of the week, Gnachis. For her, I, I'll have to teach her what a podcast is, you know? <laughs> so how are things in the great state of Colorado these days? Well, you know, it's tough everywhere with the pandemic. Obviously, the whole nation, the world's in the throes of the pandemic. It's actually, as you know, much worse in the United States than almost anywhere else. And we're no exception. I mean, we've lost 2,100 people so far. And I went to a funeral of a friend that died of COVID uh, just this last week. But other than that, um, it's a beautiful state. We have great outdoors, great weather, ski seasons opening, hiking, biking, you know, mountain climbing, you name it. Great place to live. Love every moment of it. We have two wonderful kids, age nine and six. And it's always fun being a parent with all the challenges that entails every day, too. So you were born in this beautiful state. You went to high school, I believe, in California. You went to college in New Jersey. You're a bit of a wandering Jew. And now you're back. Liel, let's be clear. He has lived in the two most exquisite places in the country, San Diego and Boulder. <laughs> Basically, he's only lived in exquisite places. Well, before you go there, I went to college in New Jersey. So, uh, you know, there's that New Jersey spin too. Just, just off the turnpike. So what kind of alterations and amendments do you do when you settle in Colorado and decide that this is it, this is your home, you're now the governor, do you have to wear a fleece more often than you would otherwise? Boots. Do you take up hiking? What happens to a mountain Jew? First on our, our family. So, you know, very typical American Jewish story. My dad's from the Bronx. My mom was born in Brooklyn, raised in Peekskill. My great-grandparents were immigrants. So my grandparents, who I was very close to, grew up in immigrant households, spoke Yiddish and English. And my great-grandparents, their first language was not English. I got to know one of my great-grandmother was with us until I was 12 or so. Uh, my parents moved west. They love the mountains. They love the outdoors. 1970-ish, my parents moved to Colorado. They moved further out west to San Diego, uh, 1980 or so. You know, the West is great. Love both Colorado, San Diego. You're right. Two of the most beautiful places in the country, no doubt. And thriving Jewish communities in both places, thriving cultural resources, uh, great quality of life. But there's always something that bothered me, if I may, about Colorado. I know there's a thriving Jewish community. I've been there. But there's something about you guys. You're simply not angry. I mean, I really can think of very few states in the country in which you come and you even have like meaningful political conversations and everyone is sort of like, hey, man, that's your opinion. And it's fine. It's like Australia. It dissolves neurosis. Right. How can you stand it? We leave the anger to uh, the New Yorkers. You know, folks move out west for a reason. And it's just something about being in kind of the outdoors, less crowded, hiking and biking and just, you know, not not having so many people around. I think there's just something that's uh, therapeutic about it. So it definitely makes us a little bit more easygoing. Okay. I want you to answer a question I could not get Wikipedia to answer for me. There have been other Jewish governors, but are there other Jewish governors right now that we know about? Yeah. J.B. Pritzker in Illinois is Jewish. They're even richer than you. The Pritzkers are like Hyatt Hotels. And oh, yeah. I'm like a poor orphan boy compared to J.B. My goodness. So we think Pritzker, Polis, anyone else? I'd have to look, but I, I, I know I know he is. And when I was in Congress, there were about 20, 25 of us. Enough for a couple minyanim. Well, you know, we actually have, we actually did have social get together. All the Jewish members of Congress, it was, you know, like 24 Democrats, one Republican, that kind of thing. But I actually hosted in my house where we had a deli food brought down from New York for the annual social gathering of the Jewish members of Congress. So that was a little bit special every year. And we even invited the, uh, the half Jews that weren't halakhically Jewish in the true uh, <laughs> tradition of openness, like my friend from Colorado, Ed Perlmutter, whose mother is Gentile and father is Jewish. What about the Indians and the Mormons who are sort of like Jews, but not Jews? Did, did they did they get on the waiting list? Obviously, as a as a good Jewish American who loves uh, loves 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 Indian food, I was waiting to be invited to theirs, but they never invited me. So I, I think they they have their secret. 
secret of meetings where they have even better food than us, but uh, they don't invite the rest of us. Speaking of food, Governor, I I want to ask you a serious question. As a congressperson in 2011, you sponsored a very controversial act which sought to say that pizza should not be defined as a vegetable. And my question is, why would you pass an act in complete defiance of all known science like that? Wouldn't that be convenient if pizza was a vegetable? I wish it was, but we uh, value, you know, science and fact, and we're trying to conform some of the, the dietary standards to that. I think we all wish that pizza was a vegetable, but, you know, wishes don't make it so. Was this a school lunch thing, like when Reagan tried to say that ketchup was a vegetable? It was, same kind of deal. So they were trying to essentially pass off somehow pizza as a member of the vegetable group and eliminate having to serve a side of carrots or whatever it was. So from one appetite to another, many of our listeners will know, perhaps from personal travel, that the drug decriminalization situation in Colorado is advanced of where many states in the country are. And I think I think this is a moving target because you keep decriminalizing different stuff, if I'm not mistaken, right? Like, where do things stand now? Is it city by city? Is it statewide? What is going on with drugs in Colorado? We are absolutely one of the leaders in marijuana reforms. We have dispensaries across our state. There's, you know, there's some cities that choose not to have them. They might also choose not to have liquor stores or strip bars. That's all. That's their business. But generally speaking, much of our state, very convenient, safe, easy. We have both medical and non-medical, but tourists can get non-medical. Medical has a lower tax, and if people have a need for it, they can get it. We recently had our biggest city, Denver, also vote to, I think is what you're referring to, decriminalize what might be called magic mushrooms by people, but certain hallucinogenic uh, mushrooms. And was that something you supported? I'm supportive of it, yeah. I, I it, it was a municipal thing, and I, I would support similar changes to state law. The marijuana one was a bigger deal. I've been very supportive of it. It's good jobs, gets money out of the hands of cartels and illegitimate business people, safer for consumers, and really recognizes that marijuana, like alcohol and tobacco, they're not great things, but we need a sensible way of looking at them where under, we have an understanding that people can use them responsibly in moderation if they choose. So, Governor, you are the first Jewish governor of Colorado, but I feel that by the time you took office, being kind of an openly Jewish politician, maybe wasn't the same kind of coup that it was 30, 40 years earlier. You are, however, also one of the first, I believe only the second openly gay member of Congress, the first openly gay governor. I wonder if being a trailblazer for the gay community informs and is informed by your Jewish identity. Is it sort of a revisit of what Jewish politicians lived through when they were sort of, you know, blazing their trail several decades ago? Do you, do you feel that these two identities are connected or are they totally separate things? You know, honestly, I think that the anti-Semitism is more virulent, more hostile than any anti-LGBT sentiment that, that I've had to face. I mean, if you think about it, I don't think there's any right-wing conspiracy out there that somehow gays have a secret cabal to own the businesses and control the world but there are people who think that of Jews. So I think that there's a more virulent hatred on the anti-Semitic side than I face on the LGBT side. I mean, frankly, from folks that are anti-LGBT, the the worst thing they ever say is I'm praying for you. And that's not too bad a thing in the scheme of things. I think that it really putting it in perspective, certainly there's more hostile words and even acts on the anti-Semitic front. What's the worst of that that you've seen? Is it emails, tweets, letters? Oh, it's the usual. I, I, you know, I mean, there's still all these false graphics up on the internet that say that me and other Jewish members of Congress are, you know, somehow citizens of Israel or unpatriotic and 
I'm not a citizen of Israel, of course, but they claim, you know, these false claims that are that are there. It's the Colorado of the Middle East. I mean, it's highly recommended. Yeah. Right, right. Well, we're the middle. We are the middle <laughs> middle of the country, uh, uh, you know, and I've been to Israel several times and, and Egypt and Jordan and certainly enjoyed it. But um, it's just these same anti-Semitic tropes. Any, I think, Jewish American in office has seen that. Thankfully, it's a small fragment of our population, but obviously... You know, it's still devastating to see in Charlottesburg, you hear people saying Jews will not replace us and, you know, in broad daylight and, and young people no less and, and sort of chanting something like that. And of course, even more unfortunate to have a president who said there's some good people on all sides among that. I think on the left and the right, it's important to condemn anti-Semitism. It certainly exists on both extremes. So before we get to the really important stuff for which we want to talk to you, which of course is video games. I want to ask you sort of what is the view from the mountains like now that we're uh, at the end of November and have a hopefully decided election? How does the healing begin? How, how do we come together again after these last four years? Is there any kind of Colorado recipe for just chilling out and returning to some kind of normal? I hope so. We had a very good outcome in Colorado from my own perspective. Our big initiative on the ballot was preschool for every kid. We got full day kindergarten in my first year. The voters overwhelmingly passed. 67% of the voters passed preschool. Look, do we have any secret? We do our best. I mean, we have a pragmatic streak, I think, in our state, a desire to work together, Democrats and Republicans. Much of our work is bipartisan. I think 95% of the bills that I signed as governor last session were bipartisan bills. We're hoping to, to keep that going. And we want to be a part of healing uh, the nation. And just as we all look to the spirit of kind of tikkun olam and, and healing, I think that's something that everybody needs right now. How could we emulate that? Because we look at the sort of landscape and we look even at the Jewish community. Things seem as if the fissures are are getting wider and, and more jagged. Is there something about the spirit? Are there... Ten Commandments, maybe, down from your mountains that, that you could bring and tell us, okay, listen, this is how thou shalt do politics. Thou shalt get along, I think. And, and, and part of that is respecting one another. Of course, we have very conservative voices in the Jewish community and the ultra-Orthodox community. My brother is Orthodox. Now, he's very liberal on his politics, but he's he's very religious and very Orthodox. And you guys didn't grow up that way, right? We grew up, you know, standard American Jewish kind of between conservative and reform. I was I was bar mitzvah at a reform temple in college. I went to a conservative minion. What was his path? Well, you'd have to do a, an interview with him. I think he's far more interesting than me in all matters Judaica, so I'll, I'll recommend that. Okay. Liel, you want to get to the the real stuff? Liel's been chomping at the joystick to do this. And so it's, so now it's like 9 or 9.30 or 10, and you've concluded the last call, and you've put the children to bed, and now it's time to get down to the real business. Governor, what do you play? League of Legends, actually. So, And my, my partner Marlon is smiling as I say that, but that's true almost every night, right after the kids go to bed, we're, we're gaming for, you know, an hour or two. And lately we've been playing League of Legends. We also do, you know, Age of Mythology. We've done Neverwinter Nights. We played through all those. But League of Legends is our, our, our mainstay here that we, we love. Are the kids into it? Are you raising gamers? Uh, our son, who's nine, has played Age of Mythology a few times. We've showed him League of Legends, not terribly interested. But yeah, I mean, he, he's into his uh, Nintendo Switch and he does uh, Zelda on there, which is, we all did older versions of that back in the day, but it's the, the current one that he's doing. So when, when you play online, is your handle sort of like at governor? <laughs> like, <laughs> no, you never know who you're playing with. So careful, whenever you queue up and play, you never know if you're playing with the uh, AOC or the governor of Colorado or... <laughs> 
uh, or somebody who's, you know, been living in a basement in, in Tokyo. You just never know. Wait, so you knew who the other Jewish members of Congress were. Did you know who the other gamers were? were there, are there other Congress people who are video game fans? Yeah, absolutely. We did have a sort of cabal there. We, we always talked about maybe doing like a tournament for charity or something. We never did, but there's, there was always a handful of them. So who was it? It's Mitch McConnell. Yeah, oh, well, how'd you guess? How'd you guess? Um, great. No, actually, um, Duncan Hunter, who's no longer in Congress, was a gamer. I think he, he might even be off to jail for something he did. I, I can't remember. He's facing criminal charges, not related to gaming, of course. But um, although, interestingly enough, I faced an ethics investigation related to gaming. Do you want to hear the story? Absolutely. Please. <laughs> so um, so I played League of Legends even back then. This is probably six, seven, eight years ago. So I appeared in a documentary about League of Legends, which was um, you know fun. They came, they interviewed me and all that. And, you know, world of politics, my goodness, you lift your, your foot wrong and they complain. So the complaint was somehow that I was promoting a private business using my soapbox in Congress. So it went to the ethics committee. I literally had to hire a lawyer, pay for it. They found I did nothing wrong. But like that was a stressful few months when I just because I was openly talking about my gaming. So that might be why more members of Congress are in the closet on their gaming. They don't want to go through what, what I went through on that. Did you have to sit there in front of the ethics committee and explain to them what legal of legends was a real in investigator had to like interview me yeah it was like a real <laughs> formal stressful process it took like several months of like money and time to get through this and i yeah i had to explain the basics of it i wouldn't want anybody to have to go through that but that might be a reason that other members of congress are closeted on their gaming <laughs> oh my well as as a joanna gamer uh, i'm very grateful that you stood your ground governor yeah i i it is a great release what game what, what do you play well my kids are now nine and seven so it has been non-stop animal crossing in our house since march they named their island poop and we've been living on it since the quarantine began. That sounds like a name my son would pick for an island. Uh, he's also a big Pokemon Go player, uh, you know, and I, I have that on my mobile device too. And that was a fun bonding experience, especially when he was seven and eight. Can you, by the way, as governor, can you influence the Pokemon Go? Like, can you determine where, can you call the company? I can demand a gym exactly. at the Capitol. Actually, the Capitol <laughs> is a gym, so I don't have to worry about that. That's actually why I ran for governor. Did you know that? To make sure that the Pokemon Go would be centered right where you needed it. Absolutely. Governor, what's up? Um, you're a Democrat. The party prevailed, but suffered some serious setbacks in other areas. And now there's, you know, lost a number of congressional seats, didn't take the Senate, uh, didn't perform as well as the polls suggested the Democrats might. And now there's, you know, as ever, internecine warfare over, you know, whom to blame. Is or is the party not business friendly enough? Is the party too socialistic? Is the party insufficiently socialistic? Like, what's your recipe for where the how the party needs to message better? Well, don't blame the Jews. We turned out at record rates uh, for <laughs> Joe Biden. And as the postmortem is being discussed, I'm happy that that's not part of the discourse with all that conveys. I took a historic victory by Joe Biden. I mean, landslide victory, 306 electoral votes millions of votes nationally, very decisive. You know, obviously some Democrats won and some lost in different races. In Colorado, Democrats picked up a seat in the state Senate. We were even in the state house. We, we won most of the initiatives we ran. We won former Republican suburban strongholds for county commissioner and other offices. So good year, but you know, candidates matter, right? I mean, it's, I don't know what the overall lesson is. It's individual people offering up their ideas on both sides of the aisle. I mean, every Republican is certainly not Donald Trump. They offer up their ideas and the people decide which one they trust to represent them. So it's just, you know, field good candidates, run good campaigns, you know, believe in the power of ideas and articulate a vision that people, regardless of their ideology, feel that they're a part of. And so one last question, Governor. You are a restless gentleman. You started a bunch of successful businesses. You ran for Congress. Now you're governor. 
surely you're thinking about next steps. So can can we get the exclusive on your 2024 run for president that begins today? Well, uh, the, the next step very likely is running for re-election as governor. I, uh, while it might feel like, especially in the pandemic, that it seems like 10 years, I've actually only been governor two years. And so I will uh, likely be running again in two years to serve Colorado, which I just love serving this great state. And, and we're working on improving our state park system and opening up new state parks. I got to, we got to dedicate a new state park in Southern Colorado, Fisher's Peak, uh, just, just beautiful and iconic and just sort of preserve that Colorado way of life for future generations. As we say in Yiddish, inshallah. Governor, thank you so much for being our guest. Ancient Klingon saying, right? Absolutely. <laughs> you guys. Thanks, Governor. Thank you. Take care. Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I'll be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox. So I was rooting around in the mailbox and a whole bunch of emails we get are the bounce backs from the newsletter that we send out. So we get everyone's out of office memo. And I just, I just wanted to, before we get to the real mail, I just wanted to quote two of the out of office memos. Will you bear with me, Stephanie and Liel? Please. So here's one um, from Peter Aiello. Um, hello, I'm currently out of the office on vacation. If this matter is urgent, please contact me at blah, 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 blah. And I thought to myself as I was reading this, I was like, fuck yeah, this matter is urgent. This is our podcast. This is unorthodox. And I had half a mind to call him up and be like, Peter, <laughs> Peter, you, you're, you're out of office memo said if the matter is urgent, I can call you at this number. Yeah. Have you listened to Unorthodox yet? There's a new episode out today. You should should wait until like one or two in the morning uh, before you make that call. (laughs) Peter, it's Mark. It's urgent. Have you listened to the new episode? Well, wait, why are you getting so ornery, Peter? You're you're out of office memo said if it was urgent, I could call you with this number. It was urgent. We should start calling people who get, we get bounce backs <laughs> to our newsletter. Excuse me. There's a new episode of Unorthodox today. Um, I don't know if you've listened yet. <laughs> All right. Here's, here's another one. 
thanks for being in touch. I will be on vacation in another room of my house through November 29th, <laughs> enjoying books, Netflix, podcasts, and some Thanksgiving pie. If you need to reach someone on the Jewish Life at Duke team while I'm away from email, please email jewishlifeatduke.edu. Joyce Gordon. Oh my God, I love Joyce Gordon. <laughs> she's the new director of the, the Freeman Center, which is the Hillel at Duke. She's amazing. And I think those podcasts, she's talking about us. There we go. Joyce is great. She's so like funny. That's such a good... And she's, su- and she's such a big fan that she has a dedicated room in her ass only for listening to Unorthodox. It's amazing. <laughs> it's the pie room. Could you imagine if you were like designing a McMansion from scratch? You're like, and then I need my Unorthodox room. And it's going to have, it's going to have a wall of just the newest Jewish encyclopedia pictures of Mark, Leo, and Stephanie, and the best sound system in the history of sound systems. They were teaching a, a class about Jewish food, like, and Jews and food at Duke. And she arranged for them to all get a copy of the 100 Most Jewish Foods from Tablet. And I was like, "You, she's amazing. I love her. Love Joyce Gordon. She earned her week Joyce, in her get back to us, please. Podcast it's, it's past room. November 29th. Get back to work. <laughs> the students need okay. to. Okay. Many people wrote in to uh, explain, to juice-plain to me, Stephanie, and Liel, what that Hasidish guy was saying about how he jellied the esrog, and he said, and then we save it for, and it sounded like he said, Chamesh Shvat, but he didn't say the 5th of Shavat. He said, Chamesh Esrei Shvat, the 15th of Shavat. Can I, can I share, since this is, this is really becoming a, a kind of like tinfoil-type tin controversy here. Yeah, go ahead. So I'm listening, I'm listening to this thing, right? And there is a moment in which I'm thinking to myself, does, does he mean to be shvat? And then I swear, I'm thinking, no, this is way too simple. Like if he wanted to say it, he would have said to be shvat, not really thinking that to be shvat, the, the, that way of pronunciation has a whole kind of like Zionist Israeli connotation that some Hasidic oh. listeners. And I'm, so in my head, I'm building like an alternate story that there's some mystical tradition that has to do <laughs> With the fifth of Shvat, fifth which, of is, when, 10 which days. is when the, the Alter Rebbe, you know, was released from the Tsar's prison or some story like this is happening in my mind. And I'm like, wow, I don't know this. This is such a Shonda. Like, what is this thing? And then the letters start coming like, are you stupid? He's clearly saying to be Shvat. I was like, oh. And the letters came in with a sense of like, they're not mad, they're disappointed. Right. But they're also a little mad. Like, they're like, you idiots. They were talking about to be so, Everyone knows that. But here's what I want to say. I, I I hear everyone. We were totally wrong on that. Um, the 5th of Shvat is our new official unorthodox holiday. Forget <laughs> right. We are starting a holiday that we, we will only observe the 5th of Shvat. It involves etrogs. I want to like start the customs. That yeah, we, we have to start the customs. Everyone wears corduroys. There's an airing etrogs. of the grievances. Yeah. <laughs> right. We each Can we each contribute something to the customs? Yes. So, I will work corduroys. We'll all work on this. Listeners, write to us on orthodoxtablemag.com. Drinking begins at sundown. Not a fast day. Meanwhile, lost in all of this is the fact that we didn't even realize that some Hasidic Jews make an esrog jelly for Tuba Shavat, which is the, the new year of the trees. So we're learning stuff all the time, people. We're just, we're in the beginning of our journey. Back to the mailbox. Good morning. Thanks for all you guys do. I'm on the conversion journey and I have a question. I've noticed that when you have guests on, you sometimes refer to them as half Jewish or point out they had converted. In my intro to Judaism class, we were told that if someone's mother was Jewish, they were Jewish. We were also told it's discouraged to point out if someone has converted. Can you clarify why you choose to use this language? Okay, well, since she stepped into my kitchen to ask me this question as I was making omelets. Into your friendlies. I will take this question. Through the window. It's a great question. I really do think that I try to honor that tradition of not pointing out converts or questioning people's Jewish heritage 
I think I would say that someone has converted if they name it as part of their journey and maybe if it's part of what we're going to talk to them about. And I think I would say that someone is half Jewish if I'm explaining that someone who isn't otherwise identified as Jewish and doesn't identify themselves as Jewish has some Jewish ancestry. But I like to think that when talking about somebody who self-identifies as a Jew, I would never just superfluously point out that they're a quarter or a half Jewish, how much Jewish ancestry they have, or that they weren't born Jewish. Not least because a point I always try to make is with DNA and stuff, we're going to find out that all of us are not matrilineally <laughs> Jewish if you go back far enough. So I or really- all of us are. Yeah, all, all the neo-Nazis definitely are at some point. Right. I think it comes up most when we're like talking about a celebrity. Mm. And we're like, yes. And we want to sort of say, like, we want to lay a claim to them. And so we'll say, like, oh, you know, Drake, who's half Jewish. Actually, though, with Drake, that's a bad example because his mother's Jewish. But, you know, people like, have expanded the definition of who's Jewish beyond just having a Jewish mother. So I think it's it's hard for for celebrities when we don't know about them, how, how we don't know how they identify. So I think we usually would say, like, half, or you say, like, Ivanka Trump, a convert to Judaism, because she's a very high profile convert right. to Judaism. But I, I hear it. I, I get this. That this is sort of part of a conversation about, you know, how we describe people. I think that's right. I think and that's Jews, good, Jews are Jews. good feedback. Jews be Jews. Listeners, keep keeping us honest. Write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com or call us 914 Mark Oppenheimer, but he is not our Mark Oppenheimer. He is the other Mark Oppenheimer. He's a South African advocate with a special interest in free speech and constitutional law. And most importantly, for our purposes, he shares a name with our dear, our own Mark Oppenheimer. So so I'm here right now with my Mark Oppenheimer Aww. and the other Mark Oppenheimer. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So I had Mark on my show recently and I sent the episode to my dad and he said, wow, the real Mark Oppenheimer is really impressive. <laughs> So in your dad's eyes, you are not the real Mark Oppenheimer. Well, so my first question for you is like, when did you first realize you were not the only Mark Oppenheimer? I think it was about 10 years ago. So I got an email from the New York Times saying, come pick up your check. We really liked your latest beliefs column. And uh, I, I realized that it would be improper for me to try and commit some kind of international mail fraud. I weighed up the sides, you know, the, uh, and I thought, can I Jew this guy out of the money? You know, <laughs> As one does. As one does. Yeah, and then I thought, let me do a mitzvah. Let me get in touch. I'll contact him. I'll, you know. And uh, we've been sort of in touch over the years ever since. Right. And here I should say that you got the good Gmail account. And we didn't get into this too much on your podcast where I was a guest. And people should go listen to it. It's, it's a great show. But what I really had wanted to talk to you about was the fact that surely part of the reason you became aware of me was because you were squatting on all of my potential URLs, Gmails, YouTube channels, et cetera, right? I mean, like you cleaned up early on. I deprived you of all the good stuff. I think I've got your Instagram account. <laughs> Are you Mark Oppenheimer on Instagram? I think so. I sort of, to be honest, I mean, this is to show how much of a fuddy-duddy I am in some ways. I created an Instagram account, I don't know, however many years ago just under the assumption that it was a photo filter thing. So I used to be a professional photographer and used it for those purposes and then didn't for about, I don't know, the last six years or so. So it's going to be a little disappointing. Well, there is a Mark Oppenheimer on Instagram. He's a dog trainer and he's Mark Oppie. Have you guys heard of him? <laughs> no, but we definitely need him on the show. Then there's Mark Inheimer who's a different Mark Oppenheimer. Then there's Mark underscore Oppenheimer, who you're 
your sister follows. So it appears to be, wait, why would your sister follow a different Mark Oppenheimer, Mark? So I, at some point, might have thought, oh, I should get into this Insta thing. Maybe that's me. I've never used Instagram. I wouldn't even know how to get into my account. Guys, there are so many Mark Oppenheimers. There, I did not realize this. Is this a really common name? Dime a dozen. Dime a dozen. Well, in the United States, as far as I can tell, there's a Scrabble player from North Dakota who I think is also an endocrinologist. And then there was an assistant director of some movies. Like the IMDb Mark Oppenheimer is not me. That's a different dude. And it's not you, right, Mark? Unless it is you. All three of us are on IMDb. We just have little bracketed initials next to us. So he's number one, you're two, and I'm three. Why the hell would I be on IMDb? I've, I've never done a movie. Oh, go and have a look. You're listed as <laughs> as a, an unorthodox Mark Oppenheimer too. I'm there for Brain and Avat for my show. And if you look at our particular episode, which is listed, you'll see the two Marks are there together. Wait, that is insane. Also, I do want to point out that there's a chef Oppenheimer. So there's a chef Mark Oppenheimer in, who appears to be in Santa Fe. So, okay, wait, other Mark Oppenheimer, what do you do? Who are you? What's your life like? How'd you get such hair? <laughs> yeah, your hair is definitely better. Tell us about your product life. Yeah, so I'm the only long-haired lawyer in South Africa. It's definitely an unusual thing to do. We're quite a conservative profession. Wait, is that true? In the whole country, in the bar, you're the only like guy with what, hair past your shoulders? You're it? Oh, yeah. Because your hair is you're as long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's down to the middle of my back. I mean, maybe there's a couple of mullets floating around, but uh, beyond that... I'm definitely kind of known as the long-haired bearded advocate, which is a funny thing. So, you know, the work I do is reasonably serious. So you don't want to be just recognized for your physical appearance. And it's a, it's kind of a plus two, minus two. So the feeling was no one will ever brief a, you know, a hippie looking guy like me. But also you're recognizable. So I've managed to do some really weird and wonderful work over the years because um, people know who I am. So a lot of the work that I do is around free speech and hate speech. And in the last couple of months, I've been in a few interesting matters, one of which was in our constitutional court, which is the kind of equivalent of your Supreme Court. It only hears a very small number of matters a year, roughly 35. We've heard a lot less during covid and we've, we've had to do it over Zoom, which has been an interesting thing. So for one of our recent hearings, the whole thing was streamed live on YouTube. So people could live comment on a one of the, the biggest free speech, hate speech cases of the last 20 years. And that's that wonderful thing about that public access to justice. Wait, but that's just what you need is like the peanut gallery chiming in all the time. Like every dumb bloke in like Bloemfontein has an opinion about, yeah, I think Oppenheimer flubbed that argument. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying much for the quality of the comments, which uh, you've overestimated the quality. <laughs> so you recently did a case that was right in the unorthodox wheelhouse. You were totally bigfooting, stepping on our territory here. It was about anti-Semitism and free speech, anti-Zionism, as I recall. Would you, do you want to talk about that case a little bit? Yeah, sure. So it's a fascinating case. So the facts go back to about 2009. And it was just after there'd been a big clash between Israel and Gaza, about just over a thousand people in Gaza had been killed. And um, there's quite a small Jewish community in South Africa. There's about 70,000 of us. And a big trade union and a group of pro-Palestinian organizations held a series of rallies. And the rallies were outside of the offices of the Zionist Federation of South Africa, which also houses a bunch of Jewish organizations. You know, In other words, those that aren't Zionist connected. And they carried a series of banners, one of which has a Star of David and a swastika on it. It said Holocaust 2009. And then it said... Gaza in the middle, and then final solution. And then um, Israeli flags were then burnt. The protest happened partly outside of these offices and partly outside of a synagogue, which was close by. A few days later, the head of this trade union then gave a talk at um, one of our universities where he said that you racist fascists and Zionists who are friends of Hitler will be made to drink the bitter medicine that the Palestinians have drunk. And if any of you send your kids to fight in the Israeli Defense Force, 
we will go out and we will harm you with immediate effect. And so a hate speech case was brought um, against him. So in the high court in about 2017, he was found liable for hate speech. It then went on appeal and this decision was reversed and then it went to the constitutional court. And I then acted for a, a friend of the court. And the line we took was to say, look, it's very important that when we have legislation which prohibits a hate speech, it must prohibit genuine hate speech. And our legislation was very ambiguous. One way of reading it was that merely hurtful speech would be prohibited. And so the client that I acted for was the Rule of Law Project. And we said, look, you've got to have clarity on this front. And we need to have as high a free speech protection as possible. So you must interpret the legislation so that it is in accordance with this sort of constitutional test. You can't merely prohibit hurtful speech because once you do that, you really open up the floodgates. And one of the sort of cases that's was brought up in this hearing is an American case of Skokie versus Illinois. I'm sure many of your listeners will will remember the facts, but briefly you had the American Nazi party wanting to march in a very Jewish town with Holocaust survivors in it, in full Gestapo gear, leather clad, waving swastikas. And the American Civil Liberties Union acted for them because the city had denied them the right to march. And the lawyer from the ACLU was Jewish. And part of the argument was that if you silence the Nazis and you create a rule that does that, eventually you will silence Jews. And the way to deal with anti-Semitic speech really is with more speech. And ultimately, that rally never happened because the number of Jews who said, we're going to counter march, far outstripped the pathetic amount of Nazis. So you had this interesting balance in the court. The other quite interesting technical question that came up was, Mr. Masuku for the trade union never referred to Jews. He said Zionists. And so one of the questions was, is Zionist code word for Jews? When the swastikas were being waved and compared to a Star of David, were they referring to Jews? Uh, were they referring to the state of Israel? Our constitution doesn't protect sort of political belief systems, but it does protect religious groups. So this was the debate that had gone on. Interestingly enough, I've been involved in another case which then targets the legislation itself to determine whether it's constitutional. So our court has now bundled the two matters together to determine, can we interpret our way around this act or is it so fundamentally flawed that it must be scrapped? You're such an American, like the liberal Jewish lawyer going to represent the anti-Zionists and their right to free speech. That's like, that's our ACLU archetype. You're the guy. <laughs> well, we took the view that what you need to do is make your free speech protections as high as possible. But if you interpret what this guy does, and if you see Zionist as code for Jews, there is this call to action. He's saying, go out and you know make the Jews drink the bitter medicine garden home. Then we said that that is going to count on our law. Where are you? Are you in Johannesburg? Yeah, in Johannesburg. Can you tell us a little bit about the community there, the Jewish community? Stephanie, I love your attempt to make this relevant beyond the community of just Mark Oppenheimer's. You're really... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't care what his name is. So my my grandparents came out from, from Germany in uh, the 30s, escaping Nazi Germany. And so there's a very small number of South African Jews who have German descent. Most are from Lithuania. The Jewish community in South Africa has been quite a vocal community and has played a huge role in developing the country. So the Oppenheimer, who is the most well-known, is Harry Oppenheimer, who was a big mining magnet and sort of played a huge role in the economic development of the country. Most of the big companies in South Africa were started by Jews, the big law firms, the big insurance companies, the big banks. And as I say, at the moment, we're a dwindling community. So there's about 70,000 of us out of a country of roughly 60 million. What's interesting is if I chat to my non-Jewish friends and ask them, you know, how many Jews do you think live in South Africa? They assume it's something like 10% as opposed to, you know, a fraction of a percent, partly because we, we punch above our weight. 10%? That's like, you punch way above your weight. I don't think most people, well, actually New Yorkers, Stephanie, I think New Yorkers think that America is 10% Jewish. Yeah. At least, yeah. right? Like Gentiles who grew up in New York are shocked to discover we're one or 2% of the country. So are Jews from New York. They're pretty shocked to discover that as well. Okay. Other Mark Oppenheimer, lightning round. 
how tall are you? And I wanted an American measurements, not metric. Uh, five foot eight. Oh my God. Wait, are you actually, so I'm like five, seven and three quarters. Like my NBA stats are that I'm five eight. Yeah, exactly. So I think if we did a, we did a head to head, we're both adding in that little extra quarter inch. <laughs> we're both judging it upwards a little bit toward <laughs> five eight. Okay. Okay. So that's, so we've got that. Do people mispronounce your last name and how? Oh yeah, they do all the time. But part of it is because of South Africa, I think it's going to be mispronounced differently. So it's going to be Opperman, which is sort of an Afrikaans name. Wow. My dad likes to call it um, Oppermeyer is the other sort of mispronunciation we get. That's a much more sort of piss elegant Euro trash mispronunciation than what I get, which is just Oppenheimer instead of Oppenheimer. What's the origin of this name? German? It's German. Yeah. There's a town, right? Oppenheim. Yeah, it's a, it's a good story. So there's a little town called Oppenheim and it's been around for over a thousand years. And um, what happened was in 1200, the, the king invited Jews to the town basically to kind of create a commercial district. And all those Jews were then given the surname Oppenheimer or Oppenheim. So it is very much a Jewish name. So other residents of the town would have been Smith or you know whatever the other German surnames you would have had would have been. Interesting. So every Oppenheimer pretty much is Jewish? Well, no. Now there are Lutheran Oppenheimers. But is, is it your sense, other Mark Oppenheimer, Omo, that they were originally Jews who just, like the Oppenheimers of South Africa, migrated into gentility? Yeah. So with, with Harry, he had a bar mitzvah, but South Africa in the 30s was kind of an anti-Semitic place in some ways. So they anglicized and his kids were brought up Anglican. And I imagine that that would have happened to Oppenheimers around the world over time. The town itself invited Oppenheimers to come and visit in 2000 and my dad went. What? They didn't ask me. No, your email got, your invite got sent <laughs> to the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> I went a few years later and it's an amazing place and they were so, so excited to have us. I think all of the Oppenheimers that went were Jews and there was a level of trepidation. I think a lot hadn't been to Germany and they were like, is this a trap? Is there going to be another Holocaust when we get there? Um, but they really were just the most amazing, amazing people to sort of, you know, take you around and get the sense of your kind of ancestral home. And it's it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And, you know, they still have uh, remnants of an old synagogue there. There is a mikveh. There's a huge cathedral, but well worth visiting. We should do a, an Omo and Real Mark Oppenheimer tour to, to Oppenheim. And then you could podcast because you have a podcast too. Will you tell us what it's about? Yeah. So the show is called Brain in a Vat. It's, uh, it's a philosophy podcast. So my, my other love besides law is philosophy. You're such an Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the other hilarious thing is, you know, um, real Mark's book, Weisenheimer, you know, about his time debating, you know, I, I have a copy and I showed it to friends and they said, oh, well, that obviously must be about you because you're, you know, such a cheeky guy who likes to argue with us all the time. We're waiting for your book, man. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So there is a book which, which got written during lockdown. It's, um, I'll send you a copy because I think you'll enjoy it. It's called lockdown. Did government do the right thing? And it's, uh, kind of philosophical analysis about about lockdowns and whether they're moral and whether they they're politically legitimate and we try and try and assess all the data and look at some interesting philosophical thought experiments. And so that book is derived from our early episodes of Brain Nevat. So uh, we had you on to talk about free speech, but we've had uh, Graham Oppie on to talk about whether there's a God. We've had David Benatar on to talk about the meaning of life. We recently had an, another Jewish philosopher, Tyron Goldschmidt, to talk about whether you have a soul and mind-body problem. So it's it's quite a diverse, interesting, weird and wonderful little thing that we've been doing. Would you guest host on Our Unorthodox if we get sick of this Mark Oppenheimer? Yeah, you can just sub me in, you know. If you're ever like <laughs> sick of the real one, you can get the fake one on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put on a good American accent so we can sort of bluff it for a while. So if people want to find Brady Devat or your book, where can they find Omo? 
other Mark Oppenheimer? So they can find um, Brandon Vat on Spotify or on Apple Music. And uh, we're also, we've got a YouTube channel, which is um, Brandon Vat, And that's sort of where most of our lessons come in. So if you want to want to see my ugly mug and uh, Real Mark's uh, pretty visage, you can check out our channel on YouTube. The book is available on Amazon and it's um, Lockdown Did Government Do the Right Thing. And I co-wrote it with my co-host, Jason Werbelov, who's uh, another very impressive Jew, one of those um, Jews who got his PhD in his 20s. He's a sci-fi writer as well, enormously talented and lots of fun. So as I'm seeing this, we're about the same height. We both like to argue both, you know, into the the whole Jewish thing. You are definitely geekier. Like you have the board game thing. You're a sci-fi fan, I'm gathering. Yeah, to some extent. Yeah, sure. You're sort of like me with a dash of Liel, basically. Yes, I'm <laughs> yeah. getting those notes. It's like, yes. It's like, right, with a whiff the of, subtle of undertones. <laughs> but hopefully you'll come back sometime. And listen, if you can score us, I feel like the German government owes us at least a paid junket to Oppenheim. I would watch that documentary, by the way, like of you two going back. It's about both of, yeah, oh my God, I'm in. I mean, I'm not going to go because, you know, I haven't been invited to the town of Butnik yet. The Ukrainian suburb of Butnik. It's right outside Kiev. I hear that they have <laughs> they have nice racquetball courts. Uh, Mark Oppenheimer, thank you for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you for being our Mark Oppenheimer of the Week. Cheers, guys. Once again, I want to mention that the other Mark Oppenheimer is single and every Mark Oppenheimer should have love. So if you know somebody who would like to move to South Africa and be courted by this Mark Oppenheimer, write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Or if you're already in South Africa, how about that? Where we have a lot of listeners. Or if your name happens to be Sid Fremmer. Just (laughs) make history happen, baby. Oh, yeah. Right about now, many of us are wondering what to get loved ones for Hanukkah. And if you need a present for the boomer in your life, for those beloved boomers, your parents, your uncle, your brother, I don't know, our next guest, Brian Hirsch, has a great suggestion. Liel and I are here with Brian Hirsch. He's the inventor of games like Taboo, Jewish Taboo, Outburst Super Scategories, and dozens of other games. His latest game is called Boom Again. It's a new cultural trivia board game designed for, yes, you heard that right, the boomers. Brian, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. So, Brian, before we even talk about this specific game, what is a game designer? How does the work go? How do you come up with rules, with ideas? Give us some of an insight into this, like, incredible, incredible profession that has given so many of us so much joy. It's a very unusual form of entertainment. How does any game designer facilitate your good time at home when he's not there to make you laugh? In my case, I really specialize in party games, social games. I view what we do as lubrication for rusty social skills. Can I make it easier for people to have a good time? You know, in this show, our specialty is making everything about Jews and Judaism, but it strikes me to be a particularly apt comparison with regards to games, right? Because it's all really about coming up with an intricate set of rules that you could sometimes break and sometimes observe in order to facilitate the existence of a community of gamers. Am I just being crazy? No, but I'm going to wind up being way unorthodox because I would tell you that the best games have the least rules. The simpler they are, the better. At the core, taboo is how do you get your teammates to say camel if you can't say dromedary, animal, desert, water? I mean, that's the whole game right there. 
So we're a little bit, I wouldn't say we're the antithesis of it, but we are the mirror image of it at some level. So tell us about your latest game, Boom Again. Now, this is sort of a throwback. So bear with me for just a second. But baby boomers, 80 million of us, born between 45 and 64, 65. We grew up playing games. You know, we grew up playing Clue and Risk and Monopoly and watching this new medium called television that was full of game shows. And we played games right up until the mid-60s when we discovered sex and drugs and rock and roll and we moved on. And no game company thought we were ever going to come back. There was no evidence to suggest that that's what adults would do. Turns out my parents who were card playing, that whole generation played cards, they went back to card playing. Well, we get to the mid-80s, we're having hard economic times. Boomers are making money, they have a job, but they can barely pay their mortgages. They're staying home, it winds up being called cocooning, and out comes a game called Trivial Pursuit, which is a very wide, but not very deep knowledge base, which is very much like a liberal arts education. And it was full of pop culture. My parents weren't playing that game, my children weren't even born, so that game was strictly for us. And it was a generation returning to its game-playing roots. It wasn't that we were passionate about trivia. It's that we were inclined to play a game, to socialize over a game. Fast forward to today, and I look back at the baby boom again and realize this huge generation is utterly forgotten. No one's marketing anything to it. They want to sell to 18, 34-year-olds. And we're online. We're not, we're not afraid of making online purchases. We're interested in being together still. What fits that model? And a game about the baby boom, but not an SAT test. My goal was to create a pop culture game. And that's what it turned out to be. So, Brian, Stephanie and I are not a member of your generation. Uh, we are the boomers' children and, as such, have our set of <laughs> resentments and complications. We're working out in therapy. Uh, so we don't want to take all of those out on you. What we do want is to try our hand. Would you mind kind of regaling us with, you know, maybe a question or two? I'm happy to, in anticipation of our talking today, I looked and said, gee, what are the foundations of the Jewish components of this? And, and some of it was absurd and some of it was funny. And someone, someone said to me, gee, you know, George Jetson was Jewish. Um, and I was taken back and they said, well, who else would walk the dog in the middle of the cold at night? And it was a laugh. I said, OK, so there's your question. What was the dog's name? And where did he walk him? Oh, Astro. Everybody knows that. On on the, uh, whatchamacallit, on the, the treadmill thing. You're now playing Boom again, even though you're not a boomer. Wait, was George Jetson actually Jewish? I really need to know more about this. No, 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 no. Definitely not. He just felt guilty and went out and took the dog outside. Let's try a different one. Yeah, one for Stephanie now. I guarantee that you will get this. List for me the three top episodes of I Love Lucy. Whenever there's a poll, what are the three episodes that come out on top? The one where they stomp on the grapes. That's one of them. I watch a lot of I Love Lucy on Nick at Night, but I don't remember. I think I, I wasn't really like paying attention to the, the plot lines. Leo, can you help me? I'm stressed right now. I'm stressed. Um, TV commercial for sure. The Vitamita, et cetera. Vitavita Vegemin. Okay, that's one. Uh, chocolates will be the second one. The Candy Factory. You just named the right? top three of the I Love Lucy episode. Okay, boomer, Leo. <laughs> <laughs> like what? I will be on my porch shouting at younger people all day. And it's good, Leo, because the way this game is played, the oldest person goes first, I believe. <laughs> and it's and that eats up the first 15 minutes while they defend themselves as not being the one. So, Brian, why is this the perfect Hanukkah gift for the boomers in all of our lives who are probably doing puzzles right now but could switch to board games? In a time of isolation, a social game is the antidote to isolation. 
This game is being played on Zoom in hilarious moments. It's about people enjoying each other's company. And that's what we're delivering. All these memories. We took Boomer's entire lifetime and divided it into six categories. Things you heard, things you saw, things you learned in school, stuff you learned on the street. Those things, once we categorize, we tell you which drawer to open, you get to yell and shout with each other and remember the good times we had as kids. Find your parents a good time. We love it. Let's party like social security will never run out. (laughs) Brian Hirsch, thank you so much for being our guest today. It was fun. It was good to see you guys. Thanks. A wee bit booming on up, booming on up. up to middle age. I got to say, I'm very proud of, of Stephanie in this interview. She really, she really delivered on, on boomer knowledge far more than I thought she would. Guys, I'm a boomer at heart. Now get off my lawn. Get off my lawn. Mazel tovs this week. I want to give over my mazel tov to a Rafua Shlema, a get well soon for this week's guest, Jared Polis, governor of Colorado, and his husband, who we learn are suffering from the COVID-19 virus. We wish them both a speedy recovery. Continuing with the theme of uh, converting the mazel tov slightly, um, this uh, week, uh, hard to believe it's already been 30 days, but marks the shloshim or the 30-day commemoration of the passing of our, our friend, teacher, former guest, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. This Sunday, if you're so inclined, at 2 p.m. Eastern, there will be an online commemoration of the completion of reading several cycles of the Mishnah, which is traditionally done by some people to honor the souls of those who are departed. So if you want to study a little bit of the Mishnah, which is a very fun book to read, if you want to honor Rabbi Sachs's memory, if you want to do any of those things, you could go to rabbisachs.org slash shloshim. S-H-L-O-S-H-I-M. So my muscle tub is like a retroactive one. You know, I read the credits in last week's show and I, I was thinking after as I heard it, I really wish I had sort of like said that I was very grateful for the team that puts the show together. You know, Josh and Sarah and Robert and, and you know, you, Mark and Liel too. Fine, I'll admit it. I'm just very grateful for this team that we have. And I was thinking that that would have been a really nice thing to say last week before Thanksgiving. I forgot, but I'm saying it now. So thank you all for being Aww. our pod fam. Thank you. Don't tell anyone I said this. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us, 914-570-4869. Do you get our newsletter? You should. Subscribe at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We are still coming to you live. There are live shows in all sorts of ways. So email producer Josh Cross, that's Jay Cross, cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. Our show is produced by him, Josh Cross, and Sarah Fredman-Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music by Golem. And our mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Jonathan Morgenstern of Young Israel of Scarsdale, New York. We come to you again from the scattered, deep bunkers of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>